0: I do want to say thank you to Joe and to Wade for their faithful preaching of the Word over the last four weeks. It is good to be back in the saddle again as we go through our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and we find ourselves here in John chapter 15 smack dab in the middle of what's known as the Upper Room Discourse. This is the teaching, the intimate teaching that Jesus gave to the 11 after Judas had left. It begins at the end of chapter 13, when he begins to tell them, just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. You turn into chapter 14, and Jesus begins to tell them uh, the sixth of the seven I am statements. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he begins to tell them about the promise of the Holy Spirit, that the Father would send the helper, the comforter, the paraclete who would come alongside and would not just be with them like Jesus was with them, but the Holy Spirit who would be sent would be in them, profound. The end of chapter 14, Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. So they're in the upper room in Jerusalem, uh, where that location is specifically, we don't really know, but it was in the Context of the walled city of Jerusalem. And they begin to go then and make that about a, probably a one mile journey to the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane was located. And that intimate teaching of what's known as the Upper Room Discourse will continue through chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 17. And then we finally arrive at the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane at the beginning of chapter 18. Well, the passage before us today here, John 15, 1 through 11, we find the seventh of the seven I am statements that the apostle John records in his gospel account. This one is, you see in verse 1, I am the true vine, and then again in verse 5, I am the vine. And just by way of review, let's consider the seven I am statements that Jesus has made through this gospel account. They are some of the most absolutely audacious claims that have ever been made by any person. He claimed to be the bread of life, and as the bread of life, he is the fulfillment of the symbol of the manna from heaven. God gave supernatural manna from heaven to sustain and to feed those who were wandering in the wilderness. Jesus is the true bread who gives sustenance. He claimed to be the light of the world. Just as in the wilderness wanderings, God appeared as a pillar of fire to give direction, to give guidance. Jesus is the true light who gives light to all in a dark world. He claimed that he is the gate of the sheepfold. He is the exclusive gate. There is no other way in except through him. He also claimed to be the good shepherd. And as the shepherd, he oversees his sheep. He cares for his sheep. He protects his sheep. Unless he is your shepherd, you are not a part of the true flock. And then Jesus made the astonishing claim after the death of Lazarus. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. You cannot have eternal life apart from the life that comes from Jesus Christ. And then as I mentioned at the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the exclusive way, not a way, not a truth among a lot of relative truths, not a type of life, he is the way. And then he goes on to make that exclusive claim and say, no one can come to the Father except through him. And then today we have the final of the seven I am statements, I am the true vine unless you are abiding, dwelling, remaining in him, you have no life in you, but further, Jesus will tell us, you will be gathered up and you will be burned. The sum total of the seven I am statements which Jesus makes is a clear declaration that he is the promised Messiah of God. He is the promised deliverer of the people of Israel. So let's turn our attention to our focal passage. This is the inspired and errant word of God. Listen to it. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, the route that Jesus would have taken with his 11 disciples from the upper room to the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane was, would have gone around the temple complex for sure, but they would have also passed many vineyards along the way and it's the belief of many scholars, and myself included, though I am no scholar, that likely Jesus went up to one of these vineyards and one of these vines, and he used that three-dimensional object, that vineyard, as an object lesson to teach these truths about abiding in him, that this living, physical, three-dimensional vineyard was going to teach us these principles. And the fundamental, basic lesson that Jesus is wanting to communicate here, and I would say this is the thesis of this section, is this, look at the next slide. Fruitfulness results from abiding. This is the basic focus of this passage. Fruitfulness, as a follower of God, results from abiding. But why do I say this is the thesis? Because these are the two words that are most often repeated in our passage. The word fruit appears eight times in verses one through 17. The word abide appears 11 times in that same passage. So before I break down the passage completely, I want want us to understand what this term fruit is referring to. What does Jesus mean when he talks about fruit or fruitfulness? First, let me tell you what I believe he's not referring to. I don't think he's talking about what we might call evangelistic fruit. Now certainly we should be seeking and praying for and working towards evangelistic fruit. We just prayed for evangelistic fruit among our missionaries. But I don't think that's particularly what Jesus is referring to here when he's talking about fruit being produced from the branches, from the life of the vine. Why do I say that? It's because uh, when we look at the next paragraph that Lord willing will study next Sunday, he gives kind of an identifier of what this fruit is and the basis of this fruit. Look at verse uh, 12 of this chapter. This is my commandment that you what? That you love one another as I have loved you. And then the paragraph ends, verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So the fruit that Jesus says should be produced in the life of branches who are connected and abiding and remaining in the vine is the fruit of love, love. And connected with that fruit of love is is what I believe are all the other uh, elements of fruit that the Apostle Paul talks about in Galatians five with regard to the fruit of the spirit. The first fruit he mentions is the fruit of love. Look at Galatians five, but the fruit of the spirit is love. That's the fruit. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. This is the kind of fruit this is the kind of fruitfulness that Jesus anticipates his branches should be producing if they are connected to him. Those 11 who are walking with him to the Garden of Gethsemane and those who are gathered here today, Jesus anticipates fruitfulness to result from abiding with him. So that's the fruit. What about abide? Now, what does it mean to Abide. Well, the next 11 pages of my manuscript talk about abiding. That's what we're gonna look at this morning primarily is what does it mean to abide? What is this abiding focus on? Well, there's three fundamental truths about producing fruit from abiding in the vine I want us to consider. The first one is this. Number one, the person of abiding. The person of abiding. And in case you don't know who the person is, the person is Jesus. Jesus is the person. Again, as I mentioned, in the previous six I am statements, Jesus was presenting himself as the promised Messiah, but he was also taking some symbols uh, uh, of Old Testament Judaism, and he was saying that he is the perfect embodiment of those symbolic realities. For instance, I mentioned the manna from heaven. He says, I am the bread. You talk about the light. the the pillar of fire in the wilderness wanderings. He says, I am the light of the world. He's the good shepherd. He's the fulfillment of the 23rd Psalm. So we've seen that Jesus is the fulfillment of particular symbols in the Old Testament, but this I am statement is a little different. Here's why. Look at this next slide. In this final I am statement, Jesus claims not just to be the embodiment of a particular symbol from Israel's history, but to be the embodiment of Israel itself. Now that may not mean much to you on first read, but this is profound. This is paradigm shifting, particularly for these 11 Jewish men that Jesus is talking to. You see, throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is likened to a vine. They are referred to, they are called the vine, the vineyard of God. Let me just show you a couple of examples. Hosea chapter 10 verses one and two says this. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Now, verse two Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Another one, Jeremiah chapter two. The Bible says, yet I, this is God, planted you, Israel, a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned, degenerate, and become a wild vine? You could also see Psalm chapter 80, Isaiah 5, Isaiah 22, Jeremiah 12, Ezekiel 15, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 19, all those places, God refers to Israel as his vine. His vine. And the basic theme of all of these Old Testament passages is, I planted you, Israel, as my vine to produce noble fruit. You were a, a luxurious vine, but now you have become Degenerate, You have become one that is wild and you are producing bad fruit. And here comes Jesus. And he doesn't just come and say, I'm gonna pronounce judgment on this vine that is not producing good fruit. He comes along and he states in no uncertain terms, I am the true vine. He's not just the embodiment of symbols of Israel. He is the embodiment of, of Israel, you have to understand where these 11 disciples' minds would have been. As Jesus starts talking about the vine, they are very well versed in the Old Testament. They are very fully aware of Old Testament truths and symbols and pictures and realities. And when Jesus starts talking about the vine, oh, yeah, the vine, it's Israel. We're connected to the vine. We are children of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them, and all 11 of us are. Yes, we're part of this vine. And Just hold on. I am the true vine. Unless you're connected to me, you have no life in you. Therefore, this is what this means. Look at this next slide. To be a part of the vine is not based upon your ethnic heritage, but it is based solely upon your connection to Jesus. You see, there were lots of people in Israel that day who were connected to the vine of Israel, but they were not true children of God. Because they were not connected to the true, authentic vine, the true Israel, Jesus. Go read Romans 2. Go read Romans 9, 10, 11. You can see this good, true vine of Jesus. You must be connected to the vine. Now, this I am statement that he makes, I am the true Vine. Just as in the previous six I am statements we've considered, they say quite, this statement says quite a lot about the character and the nature of Christ. And I want us to consider a couple of those. First, as we see with the other six, he is making a statement about his deity. Jesus is making a clear statement about his deity. I won't belabor the point because we've looked at this six times already. But when Jesus says, I am, he is making a clear declaration of deity. He's taking the Old Testament name of God, the tetragrammaton, the I am, the all-sufficient one, and he is taking that unique title, name of God, and he is applying it to himself. All through John's gospel. If there's one thing you can get from the gospel of John, it should be this. Jesus claimed to be God. Again and again and again, John, his closest disciple, presents Jesus' statements that he is God in human flesh. All the way to the very beginning, John 1, 1, the prologue, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word what? Was God. Jesus is God. If nothing else, we see his deity on display. And here with this seventh I am statement, he is saying I am. That's a declaration of deity. But another pronouncement he's making is a pronouncement about his exclusivity. His exclusivity. Again, we saw this in the previous I am statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But this statement here is also an exclusive statement. By saying he is the true vine, he's saying there is no other vine. There is no other way. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius, not Joseph Smith, not Mary Baker Eddy, not uh, L. Ron Hubbard, not Ellen G. White. All these self-proclaimed prophets and messiahs and saviors and gurus, they are not the true vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine. No other connection to anyone else will get you to God. He's saying a statement about his deity, I am. He's saying a statement about his exclusivity, the true, but he's also making a statement about his virility, His virility, he is the vine. And this is the subject matter of this living metaphor before them. It is from the vine, from the sap of the vine, that life, virility, existence is transferred and transmitted. The sap that flows up from the root out to the shoot is the life of Jesus. Those branches that we just read about, that are disconnected, that are dried up, and that are shriveled, they are not producing any fruit because they are not connected to the vine. In fact, notice verse two again, the beginning. Jesus said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the gardener, the vine dresser, the father, takes away. You see, there are those who suppose that they are part of the vine but their lack of fruit bearing communicates something completely different. They do not have the life, the sap of the vine flowing in them and through them. Now, just a point of clarification here. There are some today who would take this John 15 2a as a proof text for a false doctrine that's very prominent in our world. And the false doctrine is this, that a true believer, a true branch, can lose their salvation. After all, Jesus said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Well, they were in him. Well, what does this mean? Well, we know this cannot be what Jesus is intending to say here because it contradicts virtually everything that Jesus has said up to this point in the Gospel of John. A true believer, a true follower of Christ, will persevere to the end. In fact, notice a couple of places that Jesus said such. In chapter 6, verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. Not one will be lost. John ten twenty-eight. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Friends, over and over again, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus makes promises of the eternal security of the believer. No one will be able to snatch the true believer out of his hands. He will emphatically raise them up on the last day. But here, Jesus talks about some branches who will be taken up and thrown into the fire to be burned. Are these formally true believers? No. In fact, watch this. Close proximity to the vine does not guarantee authenticity. Close proximity to the vine does not guarantee authenticity. Case in point, Judas Iscariot. Was he close to the vine? Oh, he was right next to it. He was close enough to have seen all the miracles, to have heard all the teaching, to see and witness all the healing, to hear the clear pronouncements that Jesus had been making about his person and about his power and about his kingdom. He was right there. But close proximity to the vine does not guarantee authenticity. You can come to church every Sunday. You can sit in the same pew every week. You can be engaged in many different actions and activities that would be considered Christian, but you can nonetheless be disconnected from the vine. Close proximity does not guarantee authenticity. The authentic branch is the one who is connected intimately to the vine who is abiding uh, abiding in the vine, whose life, whose sap is flowing in you and through you producing spiritual fruit. That leads to the second thing I want us to consider about abiding, number two, the process of abiding. The process of abiding. While Jesus does mention dead branches that are taken up, taken away, thrown into the fire, and burned, the bulk of his instruction is about the living branches, about the ones who are connected to the vine, the ones who are bearing fruit. What is the goal, what is the purpose of branches? To produce fruit, (laughs) that's the goal. In fact, there are really four types of fruit production, or four levels, if you will, of fruit production that Jesus mentions in this passage. Look at the next slide. First, he talks about those with no fruit. That's the dead branches that are carried away and burned. Then he says at the middle of verse 2, those who are bearing fruit, those who are connected, so they have some fruit. Then he talks about more fruit. Those are the pruned branches at the end of verse 2. And then he says the fourth level, much fruit. Those are those who are abiding branches, abiding in the vine. And the progression from bearing some fruit to more fruit and much fruit happens in the process of abiding that we're going to consider. The first part of abiding is this, the pruning of the Father. The pruning of the Father. Jesus identified his Father as the vine dresser, as the gardener. He said in verse 1, my father is the vine dresser. And part of what the gardener, what the vine dresser does is seen at the end of verse 2. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I want you to think about that for a second. Let's say you are a true vine, and you're producing some fruit. God the Father sees you. He sees your connection to Jesus, He sees the life of Jesus flowing from him to you, through you. He sees the fruit being produced, and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go prune that fruit-producing branch. I'm going to take out my loppers, (laughs) and I'm going to start cutting some stuff off. I'm going to take the knife to this fruit-producing branch. Now, that, we might think, that doesn't sound right, The loppers should be reserved for the disobedient Christians. The loppers should be reserved for those fruitless people. But Jesus says the exact opposite. Every branch that does bear fruit, guess what? The vine dresser, the father, comes along and he starts pruning. He starts cutting. Why? He says right in the text that it may bear more fruit. We have two young plum trees in our backyard, And uh, last year, I pruned them back for the very first time, much to the dismay of my wife. She thought I pruned them back way too far. And I said, honey, are these plum trees to produce green, luscious leaves? Are they supposed to produce plums? What is it? Plums. Unless you just have it there for ornamental purposes, then you like the green, lush leaves. I cut them way back, and now they are overgrown again. I sent my wife a text this week. Hey, I just read, it's time to... Prune those plum trees again. She did not respond to that text. (laughs) I don't know why. Pruning is necessary because pruning a fruit tree, pruning a plum tree, takes that energy that the root would send to those shoots, and it sends it to the fruit. And particularly if there are parts of the fruit tree that are diseased, you got to cut those things off so the disease doesn't spread to the rest of the tree. The idea behind pruning here is that whatever inhibits growth, whatever inhibits fruit production must be lopped off. I've got a couple pictures of vineyards. This first one is a picture of a vineyard in the springtime. You see the luxurious green vines and all of the leaves, and it's loaded down with juicy grapes. That's a picture of the vineyard in the spring. Now look at this same vineyard in the winter. This is after the gardener's gotten a hold of it. Cuts it way back, almost just the nub of the the vine is there. Why? Because vineyard owners know you can't let these branches just grow wild or they won't produce the type of grapes or the amount of grapes they're capable of producing. Fruit trees, vineyards produce the most fruit when they are pruned aggressively. I can look at this next slide. The Father will cut away things in our lives that are inhibiting fruit production. The Father will cut away things from our lives that are inhibiting fruit production. These are things that may be spiritually detrimental. Sometimes they're things that are otherwise even good things. He takes a knife to our habits. He applies his pruning shears to our priorities and our values. He cuts away relationships that hinder our growth. And it's important to note, this is not punishment. This is the loving action of a father of a vine dresser who wants to see you produce the most fruit you're capable of producing. In this season, you may pray, though I'm going through this loss, this lopping off, this trial, Lord, develop my faith and produce more fruit in me. Peter was no stranger to the pruning shears of the father. Notice what he told the churches in Macedonia in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in, that's fruit, praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James put it a similar way in chapter one. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces, that's fruit, steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So friends, you will endure trials in this life. If you are a parent, you will endure trials. If you're a husband or you're a wife, you will endure trials in your marriage. If you're an employee or an employer, you will endure trials in your work that are challenging. What are we to do? Throw in the towel? Give up? No, we lift our eyes to the vine dresser and we say, Lord, produce the fruit in me that you want to produce and cut off anything that inhibits that production so that we might bear more fruit and much fruit. In fact, notice how David saying, how he put it in Psalm 119. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, after the affliction... I keep your word. Here's the comforting truth, look at this next slide. The hand of the father is never closer than when he is pruning the branches. Think about that. The vine dresser comes and he carefully lifts up the branch and he comes with the shears and begins to cut off those wild shoots. The hand of the Father is never closer to you than when he is pruning you. What a comforting truth. That leads to the next aspect of the process of abiding. I want us to consider not only the pruning of the Father, but secondly, the precepts of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord. Verse three, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. I want you to circle that phrase, the word that I have spoken. The word that I have spoken. Jesus is saying his word, his precepts, his commands, they have a cleansing power. Here's another word I want you to mark. Underline the word clean. Clean. That's the noun form of the verb prune in the previous verse. The vine dresser prunes, verb, and Jesus says, already you are clean. And we get our English word catharsis from these words. You're clean. There is a cleansing power from the word of God. Have you come to recognize this in your life? There is a power in the word in the precepts that The Father, he cuts, he prunes through the experiences of life. But Jesus comes and he cleanses us. He makes us more fruitful through our engagement with his word. And here's the deal. It is impossible to abide in Jesus, to abide in the vine, apart from engagement with his word. Impossible. Impossible to abide apart from engagement with the precepts of the Lord. Now, this active engagement of our lives with the precepts, with the commands, with the word of Jesus are multifaceted. One would be at the very most basic level to regularly sit under the preaching of the word. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here sitting under the preaching of the word. But this was particularly in my mind because as I thought back over the last couple of months, I've had several meetings with individuals who have come to me because of a crisis, whether that was spiritual, relational, psychological, emotional, something happening in their lives, and one of the things I confronted them on was this. um, Why do I never see you in church? That is the most basic level of engagement with the word. To regularly be with the body under the preaching of the word. But it goes beyond that. We have such an abundant blessing in our day and age to have the Bible in our hands in a language we can understand and how neglectful we are of the scriptures in our personal lives. Jesus says, this is how you're cleaned. This is how you produce fruit through the word that I've spoken to you. The author of Hebrews describes the powerful pruning work and cleaning work of the scripture in Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart." So abiding in Christ means coming under the authority, coming under the instruction, coming under the tutelage of the precepts of Jesus. Listen, abiding in Christ is not just this kind of nebulous, amorphous, oh, I'm abiding. It is active engagement with the truth. (laughs) You wanna hear God talk to you? Read the Bible out loud. That's how he talks to you. You can hear the voice of God when you read the Bible out loud. That's how he grows us. The pruning of the Father, the vine dresser, the precepts of the Lord, his transforming word, and thirdly, the presence of the Spirit. The process of abiding is also involved in the presence of the Spirit. and We see this Trinitarian work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now this principle is not um, explicit in our focal passage, but I believe it is implicit there. The reason why is because John 15 here is sandwiched between John 14 and John 16. And John 14 is where Jesus first gives the promise of the Holy Spirit that the Father would come, send, who would not only be with you, but would be in you. You get over to John chapter 16, and Jesus begins to talk about the specific work of the Spirit who convict of sin. And so I believe certainly this, this, work and presence of the Spirit is involved in this process of abiding. And, and the reason why is I, I gave you this preview back in May. You slept since then, so you don't remember it. But I pointed out one word when we studied John 14. Look at John 14, verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. You see that word dwell there? It's the exact same word translated abide in chapter 15. So this abiding in the vine certainly includes the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The the Holy Spirit is the Energy, the dynamic power that produces this fruit in us. Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, how much more will not the spirit who, who dwells in you give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you? This is how we have the life, through the indwelling spirit. So, how does the Holy Spirit dwelling within us produce fruit? in this process of abiding, his presence. Let me illustrate it like this. Back in 2011, many of you will remember the devastating uh, tornadoes that ripped through our region. April um, 27, 2011. I was sitting in my office, which at the time was over here. I was, it was a Wednesday morning. I remember that because I was working on my Wednesday night Bible study, and I was riding away. Then all of a sudden, the power's out, and the first thought I had was, I didn't save my changes. Great, I've lost everything. <laughs> Little did I know we would not be having church that night. I, look at, I hear the wind blowing and the rain hitting, and I look out the window across the parking lot right over here, and all these massive trees have come tumbling and fallen over. Huge, big oak trees. And I say, this ain't right. I begin to walk down the hall. Nona, our secretary, was in the hallway, and she's sh- literally shivering in the hallway. I come to the sanctuary, and this window is blown out. Rain is blowing in sideways. I said, oh, this is not good, right? So I begin to look around the neighborhood. I check on Miss Bazen. I check on several places around here that had obvious damage, and then I got in my truck, and I meandered my way back to the north end of the valley where we lived at the time, and I was listening to the radio to the, Weather channel, and I'm listening to uh, the fact that this was not going to be the last of the tornadoes, that there was another band that was going to be coming through. And you see there, some 206 is it 16 tornadoes confirmed on that day in our region? Crazy day, you all remember that? Power was out all through our community, and as I meandered through all the fallen power lines and trees down, and it got all the way back to my house, I said to myself, We're going to be without power for a long time. And so I called Home Depot and Lowe's and Hickson and Chattanooga to see if they had any generators sold out because I didn't have a generator. I called Fortigothorpe. They had a couple left. So I went there. Of course, I didn't break any of the speeding laws, but I went there quickly, and they had two generators left. One looked like it was big enough to power a small toaster, The other looked like it was big enough to power a small subdivision. Guess which one I bought. (laughs) Right? I brought this generator home. I I disconnected the main line going to the power lines because I didn't want to send power to all of Oakburg Drive. And I um, hooked this generator up to a 220-volt breaker on our panel. Cranked it up. We had power. Not just power. We had incredible power I ran everything except our central A.C. unit. That means we had a washer and a dryer. That means we had a microwave that worked and a stovetop that worked. That means we had, get this, hot water with which to shower. Power. This was plugged in. Jesus says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit His presence, the very Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He will empower you with the capacity to bear fruit, bear more fruit, bear much fruit. But that leads to the third and final thing. And I know as you're looking at the outline, you see about seven more blanks to fill in. We're going to go through these quick, all right? That is number three, the promises of abiding. The promises of abiding. Five promises that come that Jesus gives if we abide in him. The first one is this. Number one, deliverance from destruction. Abiding in the vine of Jesus gives the promise of deliverance from destruction. Notice again the fate of the dried dead branches that are not connected to the vine in verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. Throughout the New Testament, and especially in the teaching of Jesus, eternal destruction is described as fire. And some would say, well, that's just symbolic. And I said, okay, well, what is fire symbolic of? (laughs) Some type of eternal, painful torment. Physical, personal, perpetual torment for the penalty of sin. That is God's just penalty for our sin. And think about it. We know that all the evildoers, the lawbreakers, the slanderers, the disobedient, the vile, the revilers, the blasphemers, they all have their place in the lake of fire forever. But in the context of this teaching, Jesus says, you know who else has the place in the lake of fire forever? Those fake branches that have close proximity to the vine. They will burn in the fire forever forever. Later in chapter 17, Jesus will refer to one who had close proximity to the vine, Judas Iscariot. He calls him the son of destruction. But for those who truly abide in Jesus, who have his spirit empowering them, producing his fruit, there is deliverance from this doom of destruction. And mark this, your deliverance from future destruction is not based on what you do. It's not based on the fruit you produce. It's based on what Christ has done for you. He has died for you. He has regenerated you from death to life, and he is living his life through you. Here's the second promise of abiding. Power in prayer. You abide in the vine, you will experience power in prayer. Look at verse seven again. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Jesus would also say, apart from me, you can do nothing. I want you to think about the things that are dominating your prayer list. I want you to think about the things of which you are overly concerned that you're bringing to the Father. Would you like to see power in those prayers? Abide in Christ. I think it would be helpful to consider J.C. Ryle's definition for abiding in the vine here He says, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with him, to be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, and using him as our fountain of life and strength as our chief companion and best friend. That's the promise, power in prayer. Here's the third one, glory to God. Glory to God, Jesus says in verse eight, by this my Father is glorified. We know we're about God's glory in this place, right? By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Man's chief end is to what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever that you may bear much fruit. Our changed lives before a watching world brings God glory. The fourth promise of abiding is in verse nine, the love of the Lord. You will experience and you will know and you will abide in the love of the Lord. Notice what he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, abide in my love. Now this week I meditated on this verse nine particularly and I asked myself this question. How does the Father love the Son? What does that love look like? The love of God the Father for the love of God the Son. The reason I thought about that is because Jesus says in the exact same way that the Father loves me, guess what, I love you. Well, the Father doesn't love the Son in a pitying kind of love or even with gracious love or merciful love or forgiving love or redeeming love or rescuing love. Now we understand, when we think about the love of God for us, we often think of those things and they're all true. We need the merciful love of God, the gracious, the redeeming, the delivering, the forgiving, forgiving love of God. But God the Father does not love Jesus in all of any of those ways because Jesus doesn't need delivering. He doesn't need mercy, he doesn't need grace. So how does the Father love the Son? He loves the Son in perfect intimacy and communion. The Father loves the Son in full acceptance. And so Jesus, yes, he loves us with a forgiving love, but he loves us with the same love of the Father. What does that mean, child of God? You are fully accepted in the beloved. Christian, you are loved intimately. Eternally, you are loved. The same way the Father loves the Son, the Son loves us. And Jesus says, you can have this intimate communion with me. You are fully accepted. And Jesus says then, abide, dwell, remain in my love. But the fifth promise, and this is where we'll close, of abiding with Jesus is this, joy in the journey. Joy in the journey. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You see, the world thinks that following Christ obediently takes all the pleasure out of life. (laughs) Why would you ever subject yourself to that? In fact, our even thinking would be that being pruned by the Father, well, that's not gonna be very joyous. But Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you so that your, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And that joy that overflows into your life, again, is seen by a watching world. A couple weeks ago, I saw how some believers in Jesus, how their joy was seen to a watching world. It was some of the members of the University of Oklahoma women's softball team. They were giving a press conference during the championship season, and a reporter from ESPN, I don't know if he still has this job, a lot of them don't, but a reporter from ESPN asked these ladies, with all of the pressure and the anxiety that comes from playing at this level, where does your joy come from? I want you to watch this.
1: the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. And I think Coach has said this before, but joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated, um, uh, just in a good mindset, uh, no matter the outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So uh, I would, that's really the only, the only answer to that because there's no other way that softball can bring you that um, because of how much failure comes in it and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. 1,000% agree with Grace Lyons. Um, I went through that my freshman year. I, I was so happy to win the – I've talked about this before, but I was just so happy that we won the College World Series, but I didn't feel joy. I didn't have I didn't know what to do the next day. I didn't know what to do for that following week. I didn't feel filled and I had to find Christ in that and I think that is what makes our team so strong is that we're not afraid to lose because if it's not the end of the world if we do lose. Yes, obviously we've worked our butts off to be here and we want to win, but it's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ and that's all that matters. Yeah, um I think a huge thing that we've really just latched onto is eyes up. And you guys Mm -hmm. see us doing this and pointing up, but we're really like fixing our eyes on Christ. And that's something where, like they were saying, you can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And, Um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and and our love for each other and our love for the game because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think once we figured that out and that was our purpose and everyone was all in with that, um, it's really changed so much for us. And, I mean, I know myself, I've seen so much of a growth in myself with um, once I turned to Jesus and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understanding how much I have to live for, and that's living to exemplify the kingdom. And I think that brings so much freedom, and I'm sure everyone's story is similar, but we all have those great testimonies that have really like, shown how awesome it is to play for something bigger, um, and I think that's just what brings me so much joy. And No matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy in the end or not. this isn't our home. And I think that's what's amazing about it is we have so much more. We have an eternity of joy with our father. And I'm so excited about that. And yes, I live in the moment, but I know this isn't my home. And um, no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be there with me in the end um, when we're with our, our King. So
0: it's great to hear young people proclaim publicly their faith in Jesus and the joy that comes from being connected to the vine. And they're giving glory to God, and they're experiencing joy, and they know the love of the Lord. And that leads to my last thought. Abiding in Christ as fruitful branches results in...